what I do well is, is not the doing something well, is thinking about the thing. So there's a great quote that says, the problem is not the problem, the problem is how you think about the problem. And, and a big thing for me is, like I, I tell Anthony, I tell all our agents at Real, every single call that we do with our agents at Real, I open the call with the same exact phrase because I want them to see and believe what I believe, which is, hey, my name is Sharam Trivata. I serve as the president of Real. And all that it means is that I work for you. You're listening to the Real Estate Sessions podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Risser, Executive Vice President, Strategic Partnerships with Rate My Agent. Rate My Agent is not just for collecting reviews. It's a suite of powerful tools and features designed to help improve your online reputation and visibility while making it easier for new prospects to find you and reach out. For more information, head on over to ratemyagent.com. Listen in as I interview industry leaders and get their stories and journeys to the world of real estate. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 370 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for telling a friend. Today, we are going to have a lot of fun. We are going to be talking to the president of Real Brokerage, LLC, Sharon Srivatsa. I'm telling you, I've done a lot of research on Sharon and what he's doing in the world of real estate. I've got some friends at Real who speak so highly of him, and I can't wait to, to get this interview going. So let's get it started. Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Bill, so grateful for having me. I'll tell you, most people don't realize this one thing, which is how much effort it takes to create a show, mm-hmm. how much effort it takes to for us to even schedule this has taken a while. Yeah. But your commitment to not just finding cool people and cool stories to bring to your audience, you don't have to do this, but you do it not just for you, but for your love to share and it takes a lot of production time and production effort. And so I just want to thank you for, for you know, creating that time and space to share with the world. Uh, it's, well, thank you very much for saying that. It's, 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 it satisfies this curiosity itch I have. So it does, it does serve a purpose. And I think it's, thank you for recognizing that. That's awesome. Well, I, look, I always like to start at the beginning. This podcast really focuses on the background of the guests. I love to get your story because everybody has a story. Very few people, I think about 10 out of all the guests I've had, knew they were going to be a realtor at the age of 10, right? <laughs> My guess yeah. is you had no idea at that age nope. what you're going to be doing. So let's let's start there. You were born in India. And ultimately, there had to be a decision made somewhere along the line. Because I think all of your success came outside of India. So let's start there. Yeah. The the crazy part about all of this is I when I when I think back at everything that has happened, I think most of the things in my life were average. I was born in, into kind of a, an average environment. I went to an average school. I was an average kid. I had average friends. I had average kind of family members. I had average aspirations. I, everything was average. But I had one thing in my life that was absolutely extraordinary. And that one thing were my parents, are my parents. They are phenomenal people. And my dad always said these words, and I never knew what they meant. And he said, you always want a bigger and better future. And I, as an adult now, I realize what it means. But as a child, it was just a trite saying that my dad had. It's like, hey, you got to have a bigger and better future. And when push comes to shove, my dad always indexed, over-indexed, invested on a bigger and better future. And I would ne- I'll never forget the time where he sat down on a park bench and asked me like, hey, you don't feel like something doesn't feel right. And I got to a lot of therapy to be able to share this. And I there's this phrase that I use often, which is, Disclosure is disarming. Everything that I had done online, 
to share the story, to share what I'm doing is I want to, I want to be open about it because as I tell the story, it allows me to process it better. Hmm. And then maybe someone will connect with it. So, and, and I'll, I'll give you, I was, I had undiagnosed ADD, ADD, ADHD, because it's uncool to have that in India and people, they just ridicule you for being dumb and no one, no one really wants that. I was the smallest kid. I never hit my growth spurt. I mean, I'm six feet tall now, but I never hit my growth spurt until much later, like in, in high school. So I was the last to get picked on sports teams. And, and Bill, I'll tell you this. I remember being bullied and never actually telling anybody about it. Like there was a time when I would have to go from one classroom to the next classroom, which was right next door. But instead I ran all the way around the campus so that I wouldn't get beat up in the lockers. Now, wow. my parent, nobody had any idea about that because I was like, I know if I walk through the lockers, I'm going to get beat up. And it was to that point where my, my, my parents realized that something was wrong. And I remember it was like my 10th birthday, I believe. I was sitting on a park bench and my dad said to me, he goes, we have to build a bigger and better future for you either here or elsewhere. And my, my parents had never been outside the country, not even to visit. And for them to have that level of perspective, they were like, hey, something, this environment is probably not the right fit for my son is what my dad thought. And, but we were, we didn't have a lot of money and he couldn't really buy my way out of the country. So he said, hey, Sharon, we need a, we need like a passport. We need a ticket. We need a skill to get you out. And I was, we were on this park bench sitting in front of a couple of tennis courts. And my dad said, can you hack it? And I was like, can you hack what? And he goes, we got to get you a skill, an individual sport, or he knew that I was not musically talented. I was colorblind. I was tone deaf. He goes, all of those are out. So maybe sports is the only answer. So I started taking tennis lessons when I was like nine, 10 years old. And tennis was the ticket for me to, you know, playing on the pro tennis tour and leaving India. And my dad believed that that was what will get me out. And we put everything else as secondary. And we put tennis as primary. So the entire family focused on, hey, we're going to get Sharon the skill so that we can give him a bigger and better future. And that was the extraordinary part of what the family did. Wow. Uh, 10, 10 years old. So immediately into tennis lessons, I'm assuming, and, and you start playing in local tournaments and all this other great stuff. But you, you ultimately make it to a school in Iowa, right? Mm-hmm. Where you could play on the tennis team and yeah. get an academic scholarship as well. And that's, yeah. that's how you got to the U.S. Well, the crazy part is I never realized that once you play pro tennis, you bust your eligibility to play college That's tennis. True. That's true. And no one like no one told me that. So I was like, hey, I'm going to go try my hand at playing pro tennis. And I played all the pro tennis tournaments that was possible in Southeast Asia. Okay. And I turned pro and, and that was what it was. And then I realized that my my applications to like Oregon State, Ohio State, all the big tennis schools in the U.S., were I got the athletic scholarships, but they were like, hey, you busted your eligibility status. You're not amateur anymore. And yeah. so I had to say, well, okay, well, I'll play D3 tennis and get an academic scholarship. So I was number six on my team the first year on a division three school. Cause then I realized that everyone else was five people that were ahead of me or better than me. I'd done the same exact thing, <laughs> which is, which is super wild. And so awesome. it, was, it was powerful to be some like high nine hundreds in the world. And still play number six on a division three team. Luther College, right? Yeah. In, in the yeah. middle of Iowa. That had to be, talk about a little bit of culture shock, maybe? Well, sort of. So so there's a great story there, which is, so I went to Luther. I, you know, the, the coach at Luther was friends with my coach on the pro tennis tour. That's how I got to Luther. Yeah. And he was clearly the hotbed for talent that 
did not know how to bust their professional status, which is super powerful. So he totally sandbagged the entire team, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. He was a great, great coach, great professor. I loved playing for him. And I'm actually g- g- super glad because when I arrived on campus, I didn't know anything or anybody. I had no connectivity, nothing. I, I was just glad that I was in a new environment to win and play and have a bigger and better future. Mm-hmm. But here's the craziest thing, Bill. That was, I graduated from Luther in the, the in the spring of 2020, spring of 2001, so 20, 22 years ago. Okay. The crazy part was this past year, I was invited back to be the commencement speaker. Wow. Nice. Which is wild if you think about it. So I, I'm back to campus and I'm like, yeah. wow, like 22 years later, I, it's not like, it's not, you know, I got, I got a bunch of gray hairs, but I didn't, I could still remember my time there. So seeing yeah. that Delta of where I was and speaking to those, those kids sitting and graduating was an insane experience because I was telling my parents that being a commencement speaker is something that is, is a bucket list item that you never put on your bucket list. You know, you never want to do it, but when you're invited to do it, you're like, this is insane that I would actually be invited to do something like that. So, so that Delta was, was really powerful. But the crazy part is what people don't know is that the, the day I got to campus and it took me a many years in therapy to get through this because I never had to tell my parents is the day I got to campus, I didn't have any money, meaning I had to check my parents sold everything that they had. When I say everything, my parents sold every single thing that they had to send me to the U.S. And the crazy part was my dad sold his scooter, his only mode of transportation, to actually buy my plane ticket. The, the level of sacrifice is insane. And I, I, the, I took that as a gift. And I said, well, I'm not going to let them down. And that was kind of like the driving force behind any, anything else. So when I showed up, my, I had a check that I took to financial services. And I said, here's my check for one year's worth of tuition. And well, it was an international check from in those days, which took like six, seven to 10 days to clear. So the lady said, Hey, here are your dorm room keys, but your meal plan doesn't activate for like seven days till this clears. So I had no money for seven days. And so I I went to every rush party that gave pizza and root beer floats, right? Like every (laughs) single one of them. And that's how I connect. But then one weekend happened where there were no real parties. Like it was kind of dead and I didn't have anything to eat. So I'm walking around campus, like looking for a party probably in 12 hours since I had anything to eat, I see two guys throw a couple of pizza boxes into a dumpster. And I said, well, it was later in the evening. I was like, I'll just wait till the evening. And I was like, I'm really hungry. I'd love a couple slices of pizza. So sun went down. I put my hoodie on. I jump in this dumpster. I grab this box of pizza. There's two ratty slices. I grab it, run, run to my dorm room, eat my two slices of pizza I had this feeling like, wow, I didn't even know what this meant, but super grateful that I got some food to eat. Well, the next day is where the fun fun happens. It's amazing how your body and your mind goes back to where it got food again. <laughs> just like, just, just like, just like a just like a ragged dog, right? So I go yeah. back and I see, I'm not joking, I see a bunch of people throw subway sandwiches into the same dumpster. And I'm not talking like little mini subs, I'm talking party subs. I go, wow, like oh. this is a bonanza. And, and so I wait till the sun goes down. I jump in the dumpster. I grab like this party stuff. I have no idea what's in it. And then out of nowhere, something like hits me. And I look at, I can't see what it is. It's dark. And I start bleeding, my, bleeding in my cheek. And then out of the corner of my eyes, I see two beady lit up eyes. Well, there was a raccoon in the dumpster fighting me for like a box of Pop-Tarts. 
And so, so I'm grabbing this all-American box of Pop-Tarts, which is like strawberry, by the way. I'm okay. grabbing this all-American box of Pop-Tarts. I get smacked by a raccoon. I'm bleeding. And so I grab the box of Pop-Tarts. I grab the Subway sandwiches. I kick, I kick the raccoon. I jump and I run. And, and while it sounds like a good story now, it was super scary as a kid at that point. And, and Bill, that was, that was, you know, in a lot of ways, rock bottom. And I, I, it gave me an interesting lesson. I was like, if this is how bad it can be, I'll be okay. Be okay. Yeah. And, and I will tell you that one of, you know, a lot of people have different superpowers and I don't think it's a superpower, but I'd say that I can take a lot of pain. I can take a lot of mental anguish. I can take a lot of stress. I can take a lot of pain. I, I have a lot. I have a lot of. I've built a lot of capacity for taking a lot of beat down. And whether that's good or bad, like things don't like the biggest of things don't bother me. Like small things irritate me. Like the biggest of things don't stress me out at all. And I can. And I. And I. I reckon it was all based on that early experience of saying, "Hey, I can just take a lot of pain. It's very hard to like put me down." And I think the big part of coming back up, rebounding overall, the resilience component, I learned then. I learned at that point when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. And I think that's whenever I get to a tight spot and I want to take more risk as an entrepreneur, I go back to, I mean, is that as bad as it could get? Well, I'll be okay. And so I think that resilience is, I think about that and I'm very grateful for that. It's, it's helped a lot. That That is that is a level of perspective that I've never heard before. <laughs> that's That's impressive. Before we wrap up on tennis, I have to ask you this question. I need your, I need, who's your guy out of the top three? Is it Roger, Rafa, or Novak? You got to have one. Everybody has one they like the best. Yeah. I'll give you the order. Roger, Novak, Rafa in that order. I just think Roger Federer is just, he, he's a gift of the sport. Like when you talk goats, like he's a gift of the sport. And the, one of the things what a lot of people don't realize is Roger Federer played, you know, call, call it 20 plus years of tennis with almost no injuries. And there's a reason for that. The biomechanical efficiency of Roger Federer is unmatched. And he can train, like Rafa is so much, like the effort to result ratio is insane. But he gets it done, but there's a lot of effort to result ratio issues when it comes to Rafa, even even, even Novak. But Federer's effort to result ratio is the, the smoothness and the biomechanical efficiency are amazing. And I think that we have a lot to learn from that from the business perspective too, because People wonder about the whole 80-20 rule stuff. It's very real. If we actually audit our lives, the 20% is what drives a lot of the 80%. And the elegance and the efficiency of how we do things really goes to how we think about the world. So I, I, to me, a lot of it is I think about not what I want to do, not what I want in life, but what I don't want. Like the not to do list, the don't want list is really powerful. It, you know, I call it, you know, a lot of people call it multiplication by subtraction. Like what can you take away to actually have something really powerful? And I think what Roger Federer has done really, really well is that the minimalism, the simplicity, the efficiency is so, is, is so beautiful that the reason he's been able to win so much is about for biomechanical efficiency. And, and, and I think about that a lot internally on our teams too, is like, how can we be more efficient? How can we be more scalable? Are we doing the right things? And can we make a list of the things that we should not do? That is more important. Like when people do think, you know, hey, like we run a publicly traded company, like we have, you know, long-term goals, both quarterly to hit numbers and longer-term goals. And I think about the opposite of that. I'm like, hey, all right, if we want to hit that, those goals, what are the things we should not do? 
And being really disciplined on the things we not do is actually so much more important because creating the not to do list is the bigger discipline component than actually saying, this is what I am going to do. Because if you spend your life never having to do the things that you don't want to do, you win so big because you're spending 80 to 90% of the time doing things that you want to do. And it's a lot easier for people to tell you about the things that you don't want. Because if you and I, if, if I told you, hey, tell me like the flavors of ice cream that you don't like, you can reel all of them off. But if I tell you, give me like three flavors that you like, you're like, well, you instantly go to the well, right? Because yep. we instantly go to what we like and the judgment around it. But when we don't like something, we're very clear to say what we don't like. So I really force both, you know, kind of agent and team leaders from private equity, all the companies we've invested in to say, hey, what are the things that you don't want to do? And let's over-index on that because worst case scenario, you eliminate all the things that you don't want to do. And that really gives you kind of the essence of what you want to do. And I think that's where Roger, Roger Federer really shines. Wow. You you end up working in the tennis industry for a few years. It's uh, my, my guess is that it was a natural fit for you. You got to travel. You were in, in these resorts around the world, we'll call it, you know, as a coach and, and as part of it's Burwash, I think, right? Part of his yeah. operation. Yeah. yeah. So, but, but ultimately, I think you get to a point there. I'm just, I'm going to put a word into your mouth where you go, there's something bigger and better for me. And you make a transition, not a small one. You're like, I'm going to become, I'm going to Wall Street. <laughs> how does how does that happen, Sharon? Path of events is after I graduated from college, I had a computer science and math major, and I had this idea for a piece of software. So that was my that was my senior paper, and I was invited to pitch at this program computer science contest at, at UC Berkeley, and I was pitching at this contest, and one of the judges pulls me aside after the contest, and he's like, hey, kid, you're not going to win. I was like, oh, thanks a lot, right? But but he goes, but what you built is really cool. I invested in a couple of guys that you should talk to them. What you built could be really interesting for them. And so that was my first startup, and so I okay. lived with my aunt and uncle. I had no money. I lived with my aunt and uncle, and we built the startup, and I realized the power of ownership and equity. Like I was not making a lot of money at that point in time. And, but I got a, a decent chunk of ownership, not as a core founder stock, but one of the early employee stock, which was really powerful. I was part of raising money on Sand Hill Road. So we raised money and our business got bought like, you know, during, during the technology boom. So I saw more money as a, you know, 21 year old kid than most people will see in their lifetimes, which right. was very cool. So I got a chance to pay my parents back, to buy my grandma house, to, you know, wipe out all my debt. Like it was great. And then I still had some money left over. So I talked to my mentor, who was the same guy who told me that I was not going to to win. And he was became my kind of my mentor. And he's like, hey, you will never get a chance to pursue what you may love or what you think you may love. Get, how long do you have money for? And I was like, well, if I don't make much, I have money for five years. He goes, great. You got five years to go do what you want to do. Go do that. So I spent time teaching tennis in the Caribbean, Dubai, and on Maui for five years. And then I called him and I'm like, hey, what do I do next? He goes, no one's going to hire a teaching pro. So you got to do like you got you need some kind of track shifting that needs to happen. And he goes, the only way that you can do that is you go to business school and business school is the ultimate track shifter. No one can say anything else. So and you have a great story. You've got an exit. You've got like world, you know, kind of a unique experience. So I but I said, which business school do I go to? So I, I here's how I chose. It had to be warm. And it ha- meaning it has to be south of the Mason Dixon line. Okay. And and it had to have a feeder to Wall Street because my mentor said, the next thing you need to learn or you should learn is deal structuring. Because if you have both technology experience, hospitality experience, and deal structuring experience, you can do anything you want in your life. Yep. And so there's only three schools that I looked at. It was Vanderbilt, Duke, UNC. And 
I, I went to visit Vanderbilt. I loved it. I canceled my Duke and UNC visits and I stayed at Vandy. And right out of Vandy, I went to Goldman Sachs. I was the only person in my graduating class to get a job at Goldman that year. I, I, I had 39 one-on-one scheduled interviews to get that job. 39 one-on-one scheduled. This is not including dinners, lunches, phone calls, nothing. It was 39 scheduled one-on-one interviews to get a job at Goldman. And Bill, wow. crazy. When they tell you about like Goldman recruiting, it is insane. Like I'll give you, I'll give you a real estate example around this. So I, this was 2007 before, before the 2008 crisis, when I was sitting in this conference room, managing partner of one of the offices, Goldman walks in, he drops like this, his, his folio and like all his client material. And he says to me, he goes, I have 27 like prospecting calls to make. Our markets are going in the tank. Like, why should I even bother to spend time with you? Like he was mad. I don't know if he was putting on a show or not. He was upset. Right. Yeah. And then I said, so all I did was I was just curious. I was like, well, I mean, what's happening? That's all I said. And he just tells me his story. And I'm like, this is great. But I'm like, how do you deal with that? So I literally was interviewing him, which was awesome. Cause I was like, this is the day in the life of the job that I want. I should probably know what I'm getting into. And then he tells me, he goes, he's like, here's a list of 30 potential clients that I need to call, call them. And I'm like, you want me to call them? He's like, yeah, call them. He's like, if you're a hotshot, call them. So and I'll tell you what I did. And Bill, I had no idea what to say or what to do. So I said, I was like, hey, I'm happy to call all 30 people right now. Do you have a script or something that you would want me to say that makes this easier? Because I bet you have like some kind of language pattern. And he, he, he cracks a smile. He gathers his stuff, puts it in his bag, shakes my hand. And he says, you're going to do fine, kid. And he walks out. And then I catch him later. And I ask him, I'm like, hey, I, I really appreciate that. Like you went from like, you know, Mr. Hyde to like Dr. Jekyll, like what the heck happened? And he goes, I've done, I've asked every single hotshot MBA that has come through that same question. And you were the only one in 17 years that asked me, hey, just give me a script and I'll call. He goes, you showed me that you're coachable. You showed me that if I can give you a script, you'll do everything. And I was like, well, and I told him, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. He goes, that's the point. He's like, if you, if you were just open for me giving you a piece of guidance to go do something and, and I want to like offer that to a lot of people, right? If you don't know something, just ask if people will give you the path, give you guidance, like don't try to be a hotshot. And that was a really great lesson for me overall. And that's what really skyrocketed my career. I mean, I, I spent three years at Goldman, three years at Credit Suisse. And a lot of it was, if I didn't know how to do something, I'd be like, Hey, can you teach me how to do this? And then they teach me. And then I would just go learn and memorize it and I would get really good at it. And then it gives you confidence. There's a great saying, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. The difference between ability and capability, right? So Mm. ability is just raw material. So my ability to walk is just raw material, but my ability to walk on a tightrope is capability. So uh, we think that just because we get an appointment and we can go in and deliver something, that's ability. But to go win the appointment, have skill around that, that's capability, which is skill. And I think Understanding the difference between ability and the capability is humility. If you just know that there is a delta, there is a gap, you know how to fix it and you know how to solve it. So I'm just in this constant quest for, hey, how can I pay a coach, a mentor, whatever it takes to just shorten the gap between ability and capability for me? And if I made an extra million dollars right now, if I just had an extra million dollars right now lying around, I would invest it in coaching. I'm not asking, I don't coach. I don't, I don't, I don't have any of that. I'm not trying to sell anybody anything, but I would rather invest it in a coach, like I hired, I hired a coach just to teach me 10 years ago, just to teach me how to write email. 
Now I have a 110,000 person email list because he taught me how to write email. I still have a coaching session with him once a week and he critiques every single email that I write. Wow. Right. Because, but he's got me, he, 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 he separated the Delta between ability and capability for me because now I just have an expert saying, well, he accelerated success. And so the biggest lesson that I kind of learned at Goldman was meritocracy wins, but if you can just, you know, build a skill that you can win on, very, very hard to take it away from you. This is all stuff that you bring to the table today. It's amazing, right? That all these things, all these pieces of your, of the puzzle that kind of put Sharon together here as you haven't even entered real estate yet. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. So let's let's do that part next. Let's yeah. go to Telus, right? And for, first of all, you get to go to Orange County or LA. It's beautiful. It's yeah. you know, it's, it's it's. I grew up in San Diego. Spent forty years there, so I know what you're experiencing now, living in California. Yeah. Talk about how real estate entered the picture for you. Yeah, it was a total. Uh, I, I, what I've noticed, and I think every every person who's connecting the real estate industry will probably connect with this. It was a total accident. So I was a banker on Wall Street and my the same venture capital judge became my partner. And he said to me, he's like, hey, I'll teach you how to invest money. I'll teach you. Like he took me under his wing as his son. And that was super powerful. So uh, he's still my partner today in several of our ventures. Uh, his name is Peter Lowy. He's an amazing guy. And he said to me, he called me at Goldman and he said, hey, well, we have a chance to invest in this in this real estate company. Are you interested? And I was like, hey, if you're interested, I'm interested because you know way more about this than I do. I don't know anything about real estate. I just own a house. And he goes, well, I know the broker really well and they have like a decent management team. It's a small check. Like, you know, would you want to write it? So we wrote it. We wrote a small check to invest in this company called Telus, which was one office. At the time we invested, it was one office, 13 agents in Beverly Hills, somewhere in that range. Just as a good kind of, angel investment. We used to get quarterly reports, just P&Ls, et cetera, to look at it. And so I, because I was in the investment banking business, when someone sent me a P&L, I looked at the P&L. Like I actually like looked at it because I saw it every single day and something looked off. And so I called the CPAs and I'm like, Hey, like these three things don't add up. Like what's happening? And they said, Oh, wow. We probably have to do some forensic stuff around it. And we found that then CEO was embezzling, which was kind of a bummer because you know, we're trying to get this real estate business off the ground. And so my partner and I, at that time, we, so I took a leave of absence from Goldman, flew to California and we released the CEO and we bought, and we like in for interim basis, we bought all his shares. So my partner and I now own the vast majority of this company. And so we were like, okay, I have a six week hiatus from Goldman. I need to find a CEO to like hand this off to so that like I can go back to being a banker. Well, six weeks, the four or five weeks in, can't find a CEO that, at that time, like that we appreciate and trust and wanna, wanna be a steward of the business. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you something really weird that happened. I was playing with a spreadsheet and I know this is gonna sound really trite, but this is truly what happened. I was playing with the spreadsheet and we were roughly doing $300 million in gross sales volume in one office. It's Beverly Hills. So like we had a bunch of good agents and they were selling some decent homes. And by mistake, I added an extra zero. <laughs> the 300 million was 3 billion. Yeah. And suddenly my spreadsheet completely changed. I was like, wait a minute. We are all printing money. If we actually have this, we had the traditional business model at that time. This would be amazing. So I, I, I went to the board and I was like, hey, which was just five of us. And I was like, hey, I have an idea. If we actually do this, I will stay and run this company. 
but you got to run it my way. I think that I can get us from 300 million to $3 billion in under three to five years. They were like, Sean, there's no way. And I was like, here's the plan to do it. These numbers are insane, but you have to like follow my guidance. If not, I'm out. And the board was like, if you are going to buy in, if you're going to run it, like go nuts. Right. So <laughs> yeah. We took we took the business straight from a business plan. I'll tell you the two things that we learned. We took the business from one office at that time when I took over one office and 30-ish agents in Beverly Hills to 22 offices and 700 agents in under five years. We were doing roughly when we and then we sold the business to Douglas Elliman. We were roughly doing five billion in annual sales. We had a ten million dollar production threshold for every single one of our agents, meaning if you didn't do ten million dollars in sales, you were automatically fired. Okay. And the culture of performance, I literally took Goldman's culture of performance as in role playing and training. And I made that the part of the culture. So I would show up in sales meetings, I would drive 450 miles a week to every office meeting. And I would do listing and buyer sales, sales call sales role play live in the in the office meetings. there was no cutco knives, or compliance, or home warranty, nothing in any of those office meetings. Sharon showed up and I trained you. Like we were getting really good at our skill and Bill, that is what helped us win. Like we won so big because all of our agents were so deeply skilled. And when we were acquired by Douglas Elliman, we went to this Elliman national conference and I ran the session. It was like 4,000 people. And I would say, Hey, so who can explain pricing? Literally every TELUS agent stands up and can explain pricing. And everyone looks around saying, how can you do this? And I was like, how can you not do this? And, and that was the, the a, a big key of that. But, Here's the greatest like lesson I learned. The greatest lesson I learned during my time at TELUS was all these business plans are built in a vacuum. So you and I start a company. We're like, we're going to, hey, next year we're going to do blank. But for what reason? We have no idea. So three years in, I started soft shopping the company. So I would go to the Berkshire Hathaways, the re- then realities of the world and say, hey, here's all our stuff. What would you pay us? And I'll make up numbers. They'll say, oh, we pay you 20000000 million. I'll be like, cool, thank you. What if I wanted 50? And they'll say, hey, Sharon, if you wanted 50, you need to do these five things. And I'll be like, thank you so much. I take those five things and hand it to my COO. That became the business plan for next year. I would shop it again the next summer. And they'd say, Sharon, great job getting it to 50. And I'm like, what if I want 100? You got to do these five things. I'm like, thank you so much. I take the same model. I give it to my, we did that three years in a row. And, and I, I tell you this now because people think it makes sense, but that is exactly what we did. So we built the business plan based on what the buyer's models would be so that I was building it, at least I knew from a, from a synthetic valuation perspective. And then when Element came along to potentially buy us, we, it was really simple because we had done everything that everyone else had told us to do. Our books were in order. Our management were in order. Our entities were in order. Taxation was in order. Like literally I could hit a, hit a button and send them you know, a seller report. And small things like that took multiple years to do. And so I often tell, that's why when we get into private equity now, you know, we have 124 private equity investments. And I tell all our private equity CEOs, you should go to market every year, whether it's soft or a, or a formal process. I want you to go to market every year to get at least one bid, because the questions that they ask you are going to reflect the business plan that you need, or at least the thinking that you need in the current environment for what happens for the future. And I think whether it's a real estate company or a technology company or an agent's business, we need to somehow say, hey, if, it, if it's a real estate agent and they have a team, they don't know how to do this. They should almost think, wow, if I had to take this team and merge it with another team, what would that other team ask me? They would ask me, do you have a CRM? Cool. How many, uh, you know, how, how many clients from your CRM actually turned into transactions? 
great. How much money did you make from that? What is your what is your actual marketing spend? So now the dashboard lights up, which is so much cleaner. So instead of forcing us to build a business when we need it, we force ourselves to business build a business based on what somebody else wants. And that that small thing is what helped us get. I mean, I, I can't give you the numbers, but it was one of the largest transactions that happened in the United States. And it was super cool for all of us because we had timing right. We had earnouts right. We had all of that right from a, from a macro perspective. But the pre-setup for all of that was going to market every summer and getting the business plan and making that the business plan for the next year. Sharon, what you did at TELUS is amazing. And that model is so different than what you're doing now. Now we're kind of glossing over a few things like you're not just part of one VC. You've, you've got multiple companies you're with. I think you're focusing on multifamily right now, but Tamir comes calling and you're a very busy guy. And so how, first of all, you had, there had to be this moment for you where this is such a different model than what I was doing in Beverly Hills. And maybe, and for you, I think the challenge is going to be, you're going to love that because it's, it's your opportunity to find that way to do something great with real brokerage. So let's talk about that. Yeah, the, the, this answer is actually a different one. And this is a hard one because I still am not over it. And this goes to a lot of truth and vulnerability and a lot of therapy. And I am in a better place to talk about it now than I was when I started doing this process. And the reason is when we built and sold TELUS, the three, four partners made all the money. But the 700 plus agents that were involved got nothing. They helped us build this great company. They helped us imbue this insane culture. Yeah, they followed us. Yeah, we put money on the line. Yeah, we were at risk. Yeah, we led all of that. That's fine. But they were now part of another company, which was good for them. But they didn't partake in any of that. And it drove me into insane depression. It was super hard for me, and I did not know why, that I did not get a chance to share that with all of them. Now, sure, I could turn around and handed money out, but that's not how it works. But it was really hard for me. And personally, I, I swore that if I ever did something in the future, it would be built around an ESOP model, an employee stock ownership plan model, or a model where everybody that was involved in creating the business benefited from the business and was I was in I was retired and I was an investor and when I say retired I was not trading time for money I was like hey I was building and I was I was an at-risk investor and I, I promised myself that the next time I was going to do something everybody that was involved would benefit from my work even if I made a minority part of the pie and I actually sketched out a business plan that is very similar to Reels. And I wrote it down and I shared, the first time I met Tamir, I shared parts of it with him. And he's like, hey man, we already built like 80% of this. Why would you want to rebuild all of this? This makes no sense. And I said to him, I was like, I don't want to go work for anybody else. I'm sorry. Like, that's not my jam. And as I get to know him, his heart, his kindness, his vision is so amazing. And we, the two of us are like two peas in a pod. And I respect, I love and respect that guy so much. He, when I talk about him, tears come to my eyes. And cause I, I truly have like insane love for that, for Tamir. And the one thing that he talks about is like, he's like, Hey, you do what you think is right for real. 
So in a way, we don't talk we don't talk much a lot during our day to day work. Like we have very clear separation of how we run the business, but philosophically, we're deeply aligned because he and I believe in the power of partnership, not between us, but with our right now twelve thousand plus agents. We want them to win, and when he told me his story, he gave up everything in his life to to make real succeed. Like he let go of all his real estate investments. He even rents his home right now. And he put all that money back into real for somebody to give up so much because he believes in the partnership of the power of we is greater than me. That was super, that was super powerful for me. So I got a chance to say, Hey, these are the 10 things that I want to do. These are the three things that I don't want to do. He was like, that's really funny. These are the three things that I want to do. These are the 10 things that I don't want to do. <laughs> yeah. And that rarely happens. Yeah. And, and both of us have enough overlap that I don't have to coach him on any of the things he's doing. He doesn't have to coach me on mine and whatever we're unsure of, I know that I can have a good sounding board for. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of real, but my time in real, but when I, how I got introduced to real was there were several teams that I was advising who wanted to make a transition. And I was like, Hey, if I'm advising you as a team and you want to go to real, I don't know anything about real. I can't in good conscience advise you. Like we have to like meet with the key people at real to see if this is a good fit for you. So when I came into real, I actually, I brought, I brought a ton of revenue to real even before I started at real. And that was a really nice way of like, that's how I got to know like Tamir on the board was me bringing, you know, teams to real. And I got to see it. I got to see it. And from an agent experience perspective, and that led to, Hey, would there, would there be an opportunity for us, to, you know, do something differently? And that's how the opportunity started. So we've been, I've been at real at this time, less than a year. We've had a chance to double the business in the last 11 months and it, I'm tired. It's been a good one. <laughs> the, the whole work-life balance thing in what you're doing, it's not really, there's not really work-life balance. My guess is no. you've come up with a system or a strategy, something, because you're a dad, you're, you're a husband and you're really important to real. What are you doing there? How are you keeping those things kind of together? Well, that's a, I think that's hard. And I'll, I'll give you like a couple answers around that. One is to do great things, you must do fewer things. And so I'll give you a couple of things that I don't do. Like I don't, I don't watch the news. So there's no news in my life. I don't do, I don't watch sports. I don't golf. Like I, the things that are recreation for a lot of people are not recreation for me. So all that stuff is removed from my life yeah. and by choice, because now I spend all of that with my children and it, in you know, that works really well. But my family has a very good understanding of what is important. So I don't get guilt for working on the weekends or working late, or I don't get guilt for that because they know that I have a 100% inflexible schedule and I have a 100% flexible schedule. If I need to go take my daughter to dance, I can take my daughter to dance. But, you know, my dad says this, he says, I work 80 hours a week, but I, I choose which 80 hours I work. Right. And so so I, wore, I wake up early. So I wake up at 4.45 every morning and I found pockets of time where I do certain things. And so I've engineered my life where one, it's good for me, but also my family is very supportive of it. Like my wife would never guilt me for saying, hey, you're not present. She knows that that is what drives me. So if I need to finish dinner and do emails, like I don't have any guilt around it. And I think a lot of people don't have that conversation with their family. They're like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to get ridiculed for doing X, Y, Z thing. And I'm not. And, and, and so a big kudos and support to my family for, you know, them being on the same page as me 
And I tell my wife, you can do whatever you want. I can do whatever I want. But if you need me, like talk to me because I can't read your mind. And so that's been really helpful. But I'll give you the an important phrase that we use at home a lot. And the phrase is, be where your feet are. Be where your feet are. And I'll tell you this one story. And after this, you may not, you may be like, hey, we're done. But here's the story. So maybe like four or five years ago, I used to drive, drive home, pull in the driveway. And as soon as the car hits the driveway, the kids, the kids come running out. Like the driveway door opens, the kids come running out. But I'm on the phone. I'm on the phone in the car trying to squeeze out that one last call. And then as the kids come running out, they're banging on the door and the windshield. And, I'm, and I hold my finger up one minute, one minute, one minute. And this happens for one day. It happens for one week. It happens for one month. And it happens over and over again. One day I pull into the driveway, garage door opens, no kids come running out. It's a very sad day. Mm. I remember the day like yesterday. That's the day I hung up the phone and I swore that I would never do that again because I taught them how to treat me. And so I realized that now if I want to take a phone call, I pull into my neighborhood, I pull over, take the call. When I get home, I get home. And outside my house, we have an olive tree. And when I get out of my car, I take my work and I put it on the olive tree. It's on the olive tree. And I walk in the house and I am dad. I am where my feet are. I don't look at my phone. I mean, I do, but most of my work intentionally has been put on that olive tree. Now it sounds weird and trite, but it gives me something metaphorical to work with. And then in the morning, when I get back up and I get in the car, I grab myself from my olive tree and I'm back, back doing what I do. I think that people miss that. And I think a big part of this is really getting to understand this phrase of be where your feet are, because if we can't have that depth of that relationship, of that consciousness, of that time together. The only people that are going to remember that I worked late are my children. Nobody else cares. Sure, in a, in a few years, we're going to have a different leadership team. No one's going to care, but my children are going to remember. And maybe they'll, maybe they'll do the same thing to their spouse and partner. I don't care, but I wanted them to do it the right way. So I really think a lot about this, which is be where your feet are. And I'm not perfect, but I keep saying that over and over to myself, which is be where your feet are. That's awesome. And the things that you do, the, 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 the amount that you give on all the social networks, the amount that you give at Rise, the amount that you give on your 5 a.m. call, all this stuff that you're giving back. I mean, it almost feels like, you know, your dad and your family gave you a lot. It feels like you're getting this opportunity to feel like it has a little payback a karma wiser in the universe. Is that fair? Sort of, sort of, but, but I think that we all have to evolve in how we think about the world. And what I mean by that is when you give from your gifts, you never run out, right? And I think that what a lot of people do is they force what they do. And I, I've had a lot of time to reflect and I say, Hey, these are the things that I, I do. These two things really well. I do these hundred things, not well, I'm going to do more. I'm going to do a lot more of what I do well. And what I do well is is not that doing something well is thinking about the thing. So there's a great quote that says, the problem is not the problem. The problem is how you think about the problem. And, and a big thing for me is, like I, I tell Anthony, I tell all our agents at Real, every single call that we do with our agents at Real, I open the call with the same exact phrase because I want them to see and believe 
what I believe, which is, hey, my name is Sharam Srivatsa. I serve as the president of Real. And all that it means is that I work for you. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that it's true. It's true. And what it does for me is it programs and gives me an anchor of what is truly important. So when Anthony reaches out, I'm like, I work for him. So if he thought that this was an important thing, I should do it. Well, there's times when some people do dumb things and I'm like, bro, I'm not going to do that. You know, I say it nicely, but, but when you give from your gifts, you never run out. And I think the more we think about if you, if you have truly good awareness, you can continue to give a lot more from where you thought that you that you couldn't do. So I think capacity is exponentialized when you're truly giving from your God-given gifts, if you will. Yeah. So I try to say more on that level of the world. And I can see I get tired, resentful, frustrated when I'm doing things that I'm not that I'm not giving from my gifts. So so when I'm when I go to bed tired, angry, frustrated, resentful, I realize that there were things in my day that I probably should not be doing or someone else is better served to do that. It's someone else's unique ability. Right. But when I'm in my day where I get to show up and I give and work for our partners, it feels like a good day. Yeah. Michael and I, Michael's our CEO. We had a chance to meet Pratesh at the T360 Summit last spring. It was, it was a blast talking to him, talking about some of the technology, the app, and the tech inside Real is unbelievable. I think your adoption is incredible. I mean, you, you, maybe we can talk about that part of it as well. Yeah. Well, the interesting part about adoption is you synthetically have to force it. And meaning we tell our agents, hey, we have 100% adoption of our technology because you don't get paid unless you use it. And it, it's, it's while it's kind of tongue in cheek to do that, it's important. And we build technology from a reverse thinking, meaning most, most brokerages would build technology with agent tools first. Hey, here's how you do social media. Here's how you do marketing. Here's how you can make a slideshow. Here's how you get some landing pages. You can do all of that. But what people don't realize is most people can do that on Canva for $5 a month. And we realize that, well, what is important for real is for us to build things that an average agent or team cannot build themselves. If our focus is that, then it allows us to say, hey, can we build something that is cost prohibitive for Anthony or Bill? That is more important. And Creating that is the hardest part. Yeah. So over-indexing when we say, oh, we have this idea for a feature. I'm like, well, can they build it themselves? Or do they have a do they have a proxy tool that they can use themselves right now? If there is, and why should we build that? We shouldn't. And so the purity of thinking around that is, that's why we flipped the idea and we said, hey, let's build infrastructure first because we want the technology to fade to the background where someone is like, hey, I'm on this app because I get on it. I can see what's happening. It's simple. It's clean. And it's cool. Like, I get it, but it doesn't like blow me away every time I think about it. We don't want to blow anybody away because the blowing away stuff, everybody should do it differently on their own because right. different people have different ideas on what blows them away. But foundationally speaking, everyone needs the same infrastructure to work. That's why we build infrastructure for, to work first. Now, when you have 100% adoption, now you can layer in tools on top because when I have adoption, I can get more adoption on tools. The problem with the other brokerages are seeing is they build all these, they spend all these resources to build the agent tools. They don't get adoption. And then now they're like, oh, crap, I spent all this money building these tools. They're not getting adoption. Should we build something else? And then you get defeated. But for us now, it's flipped because now we have infrastructure. Then we can build an AI layer. Then we can build an agent tools layer. But you already have 100% adoption. So it's much easier to get to get feedback on those things. So our thinking has been, let's build things that they can't build themselves. 
And then once you have 100% adoption, it's much easier to get adoption on everything else. Real quick, just two more questions. First of all, what's next for real? What's next? Yeah, the, I, I think the, there, was a, there was a great quote. Someone said, I don't know who it is. And he, we talked about the rise of real. And the rise of real to me on the outside feels egotistical. They're like, look at us, you know, rise of real, but that's not it. The rise of real is a very, very humble thing for us. Meaning it took us this long, meaning it took us three years of this model to get into all 50 states in the four big Canadian provinces. It took us this long to get market penetration. It took us this long to build infrastructure. It took us this long to, to de-risk so many people that joined us early. It took us this long to have the early adopters get validated. It took us this long. And the rise right now is because everything that we built so far is table stakes. That is the rise of real. Because a lot of people are like, look at us, we're amazing. I'm telling you, we, we are not amazing yet. What we have built is table stakes in our minds. Yes, our table stakes may, may be significantly different than everyone else and significantly better than everyone else because we've had a chance to think about the world differently. But we believe that what we have built so far is table stakes. Like we needed this baseline to run a good business. In fact, if we stopped building anything, we'd be just fine for 10 years. And that's when you know we have table stakes. Yeah. That's when you know you have a baseline that you can operate a business well. But this is where the good stuff happens. This is where we're like, hey, how can we connect the consumer to the real estate transaction? If we don't go to the consumer, then we're putting all the pressure on the agent to have to go to the consumer. Can we assist in that process? What, what is the role of AI? Is, is it generic AI or is it functional AI? Well, currently we have, a piece of, we have one piece of AI called Leo that is answering 700 questions a day. On average, that is three to four support people that on, on a payroll basis. Mm -hmm. But the crazy part is not the three to four support people. It's the instantaneous answers that our agents are getting at 11 o'clock at night about their transaction. And that is just in beta. So how do you get the consumer-facing touch? How do you get the overall efficiency? And then how do you get the new stuff we're launching? Like we're launching, we realize that one of the things that is not that we have not done or the industry has not done well is it's that it's always told the agent the way you do well is to sling more homes, is to sell okay. more homes, which is fine. I understand that from a production perspective. Sure. However, however, that is a sales business. That is not a career. A career involves a lot more. A career involves ups and downs in production. A career involves ups and downs in market cycle. A career involves a, a, a safety net and a nest egg of some sorts. So I think a lot about this one thing. How do we take real estate from a sales business and make it a career for agents so that they know that I don't have to look at my business plan and say, I need to do 10% more this year. They know that I do whatever I do and I get paid to do whatever I always do. Meaning I get paid in stock or in whatever comp to produce. I get, I get stock for just capping and hitting my normal targets. I get stock when I, I get, I get compensated when I attract somebody to the firm. I get stock, I, I get paid on revenue share, which is Cool, I help build and grow the firm so the firm is rewarding me. Can I can we actually build career-based financial incentives for people so that they realize that they just don't have to sling more homes? They can do what they already do, but when the market changes, their life changes, and other things happen, it's smoothened out and they can live in this ecosystem for a much longer period of time. I really think a lot about that one thing, Bill. How do you take a sales business and turn it into a career? Because when you do that, you don't get a hundred percent adoption you get 100% love. That is the key. People are thinking about money and adoption, but when they think about, hey, if you create something that has never been created before, an independent contractor, 
or go out and do what you do best. But instead, you bring them together and say, hey, we want to build a career for you. I think you have this depth of love and bond that you have with our partners that it can never be replaced. And that that feeling is way more powerful than anything else that we can build. Sharon, I'm going to ask you the same final question I've asked every guest since Jay Thompson. I don't know if you know Jay, but he he, he was the guy who had to work at, for, for Zillow and be the public outreach guy. So I've known yeah. Jay for a long time. Uh, but the question is very simple. What one piece of advice would you give a new agent just getting started? I think about the, the little, a little framework called the GPS. G for goal, P for plan, S for support. So some you need some kind of goal. When you have some kind of goal, you need some kind of plan. But a goal and plan is not enough unless you have a support system. In a business like real estate, the fastest way to succeed is to plug into an ecosystem of success. It's like a, it's like a young rookie wide receiver showing up at the Kansas City Chiefs. Right now, they will win so much faster because they're in the system. They're in the ecosystem of success. So... I would say, put your ego aside, find the greatest support system you can be in. It'll collapse your learning curve. And what you get is what we talked about before, the difference between ability and capability. Because when you get your support system, you get accelerated capability. And once you have that, you've won in in numerous ways. So goal, plan, support, and just plug into an ecosystem of performance. Because once you get that, capability always wins. Sharon, if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the easiest way for them to do that? I, I imagine social, maybe? Yeah, social is the easiest. I, I put, I give away all my stuff. Everything that I do is for free. I don't charge for anything. Everything in my world is for free because it's my way of giving back to the world. Instagram is probably the easiest way. It's my full name, but I also have a podcast very similar to Bill's. Bill's yours is better than mine. It's called Business School. And I try to make every single episode, which is a solo episode. I try to make every single episode if I were doing a paid course. So every single episode is designed like a paid mm-hmm. course. So if I were not going to charge for that episode, I would not put that out. So every single episode is designed like a paid course. I spent a lot of time designing it. And so if you want to check that out as business school is the name of the podcast and uh, totally free. Well, I will put all the links in the show notes for all of this stuff. Make sure you know how to get a hold of Sharon. Sharon, this was just through the roof. Good. Fantastic. Thank you so much for the time because I know, I know how busy you are. Thanks again for, for a wonderful episode. Hey man, I appreciate you. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you for listening to The Real Estate Sessions. Please head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash RE Sessions to leave a review or a rating and subscribe to The Real Estate Sessions podcast at your favorite podcast listening app. (laughs) 